This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're actually, our text today is verses 5 through 7, but we're going to begin reading in chapter 4, verse 17, and read down. I think you'll see why for the context. Pretend there's no chapter break. And see our, our text in context of this wonderful letter of 1 Peter. This is God's word. It is a gift to us. It is inspired. It is inerrant. And the Lord has a word for us today. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now here's our text. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. Because he cares for you. Amen. I think the, the main point of this text this morning is clear. We, we should be humble people. We, we should seek to grow in humility. We should pursue humility. It, it's about the pursuit of humility. I had two different friends recommend a book with a fascinating title, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church thought it was a book about wine when I first heard it. 
It was written by Alan Kreider, a retired professor of church history and missions at a Mennonite seminary. And although the, the title almost kept me from reading it, I bought it and I found the book as fascinating as the title. And most importantly for me, faith building. Professor Kreider says he read a book about evangelism in the the early church, and it captured his imagination. His wife, Eleanor, apparently, also is very knowledgeable of church history and missions. And so her knowledge was very helpful. He said he found joy in talking with her at length about the book because they share this love for that season of church history that's so fascinating. He said Eleanor read and critiqued many drafts of these chapters from his book and was patient even when there was no discernible signs of ferment. See, that's high humor for a professor. He says this, the growth of the Christian church in the Roman Empire is mysterious. Scholars who spend their entire lives studying this phenomenon continue to find it surprising. Why did this minor mystery religion from the Eastern Mediterranean, marginal, despised, discriminated against, grow substantially? Eventually supplanting the well-endowed, respectable cults that were supported by the empire and the aristocracy. What enabled Christianity to be so successful that by the 5th century it was the established religion of the empire. Have you thought about that? You ever wondered about those questions? It's a great question. The ones who turned the world upside down have come here also, they said in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. And it appears in the first few centuries of the church that the same thing was happening. In his book, Professor Kreider gives four reasons he found. He says he added these reasons to what he had seen scholars that tried to explain this had said. Four reasons. And they, they just ring true to me because of our study of 1 Peter. One of them is patience. This is why the church succeeded. Patience. A virtue that he says wasn't valued by most people in the Roman Empire. So he said most scholars give it little attention because it just wasn't important in the Roman Empire. But according to him, it was valued and it was emphasized in the church. He says they, they talked about patience and wrote about it. Christian writers called patience the highest virtue, the greatest of all virtues, the virtue that was peculiarly Christian. The Christians believe that God is patient and that Jesus visibly embodied patience, and they concluded that they, trusting God, should be patient, not controlling events, not anxious or in a hurry, and never using force to achieve their end. Another reason he gave was behavior, their lifestyle, rooted in patience. He calls it a weird word, I won't tell you. But it's, it's habits, it's lifestyle rooted in this patience that characterized the early church and explains, according to him, 
why they succeeded. It enabled them to address difficult problems that ordinary people couldn't address. They couldn't offer hope. But these Christians could. When challenged about their ideas, they pointed to their lifestyle. They pointed to their actions. They believed their lifestyle was eloquent. It communicated. It said what they believed. It was an enactment of their message. Can you hear Peter in this? It was their lifestyle that appealed to non-believers. Apparently, they weren't making use of social media as much. They made the gospel attractive with a lifestyle that matched what they preached. Thirdly, he said community. They were uncommonly committed to their community. So it's great to hear Noah talk about his community. And it just encourages you about VFC, that this young man would come to, from Cincinnati and plug into a community and find fellowship there that would encourage his faith. These early Christians discipled their members in their communities through their worship, through their teaching, through their instruction, through their prayers, through their relationships. They knew it's essential to our survival in the Roman Empire that we have this community. And it glorified God. It was a means of grace for every member. And it empowered them to live this lifestyle that commended the gospel. Finally, ferment. By ferment, he means, which if I could talk to him, I'd say, yeah, let's change that word. Ferment, he means, though, God's empowering presence. Just that invisible hand of God at work among a people. The bubbling, he calls it the bubbling energy of the church. You can explain the success of the Roman Empire by supernatural power. I'm sure it doesn't take me to explain why that's so relevant to us today. What was needed in the second century is needed today in the 21st century. And his four reasons make sense for us as we're studying 1 Peter. It just seems like the church knew the truths that Peter was communicating as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and they were faithful. They had God's word, and they applied it, and they succeeded. With that encouragement, as we look at the conclusion of these of this letter, this wonderful letter. Notice and just think about how these reasons, you know, patience, behavior, community, God's invisible power are on every page of this letter as we conclude. And it's in this text. Let's be encouraged and receive faith this morning that we too can enjoy success in the midst of of a culture that it seems everything stacked against us. Chapter 5 began, Mike shared a word last week, with a word to the elders, the pastors of the church, to shepherd the flock humbly. And now the focus turns to the others in the church. Verse 1, I exhort the elders among you, so I exhort the elders among you. And now in verse 5, Likewise, 
you who are young. All these are connected. So, therefore, accordingly, in light of what came before this, and that's why we read verses 17 through 19, that what, what is going on is Peter's highlighting the second coming of Christ. And in light of that, so, you elders, be, be pastoring in the churches humbly, all of you, likewise, in light of this judgment that begins with the house of God, humble yourselves. The main point is that all the members of the church should be humble people. Pursue humility. Three times the command comes in our text. Verse 5, first part, you who are younger, be subject or be humble toward the elders. Second part of verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And finally, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So it's, it's important that we recognize before Peter deals with the problem of anxiety, and the reason he's dealing with the problem of anxiety is because he's dealing with the problem of pride. The command for humility makes the command to cast our anxiety on God more urgent and more needed. Take it from an anxious guy. This is very helpful. Humility is essential in the life of a Christian. There are a number of things that we can learn from our text that will serve us in our pursuit of humility. I'm going to give you three. The first one is a definition of pride. If you think about this text, you can understand exactly what we mean by pride. And it's good to think about what is pride because of how important humility is in Scripture. Pride is what our text says God opposes. Pride is what he opposes. Verse 5, you who are younger, be subject, be humble to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Pride refuses to be under his hand. Pride chooses self-care for all their cares, for all their anxieties, rather than giving them to the Lord. They refuse to do it. Pride refuses to do it. Pride is the exaltation of self, self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-love. Pride is self-sufficiency, self-reliance. Individuals can be proud. Nations can be proud. Communities can be proud. Cultures can be proud. Sometimes it's great to be a Tennessee ball. Everyone in Alabama is proud. This summer, we're going to be doing a series on the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. One of them is Hosea. In verse 4, he's, the Lord tells them why they've gone into exile, why they've been disciplined. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled. 
and their heart was lifted up. They were proud. Therefore, they forgot me. Why did the nation of Israel in the Old Testament experience the Lord's discipline? Pride. That's the essence of pride is forgetting the Lord. Deuteronomy 8, through Moses, the Lord had warned them of pride and that pride would bring his discipline. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. This is how it works. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, all you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, proud. And you forget the Lord your God. You forget His mighty hand who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't know, that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. The Lord warned Israel of the danger of pride, and He's warning us today. They didn't listen to His advice, we should. Pride turns God's goodness into a reason for boasting. That's what pride does. It takes credit for what God has done. Pride wants to be acknowledged. Pride insists on recognition. Pride's when we want to be made much of. We want to be honored. This is what Jesus admonished the religious leaders in Jerusalem about. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces being called rabbi by others. That's pride. He was rebuking their pride. He's he's telling the religious leaders in Jerusalem to be humble, like Peter's telling the pastors of churches to be humble. Pride refuses to obey God's command. Pride rejects God's right to even make the rules. Even though he's the creator And maker of heaven and earth, it's his creation. Pride says, you have no right to command me and tell me what to do. Pride will not submit to God. Jeremiah 13, thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah, the nation of Israel, and great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words who stubbornly follow their own heart, have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. Because of his discipline and his admonishment. In fact, pride considers itself above instruction. Pride doesn't need advice. That's pride. We're defining pride. Oh, how we hate to be instructed. Don't we? In Proverbs 1, wisdom shouts in the streets. You neglected all my counsel. You didn't want my reproof. 
I will laugh at your calamity. When distress and anguish come upon you because you hated knowledge, you didn't choose the fear of the Lord, you wouldn't accept my counsel, you spurned on my reproof, so you shall eat of the fruit of your own way. You wouldn't accept counsel, you had to do it your way, it's a song, but he who listens to me he who listens to wisdom, God's advice, God's counsel, God's instruction, he will live securely. That's the voice of wisdom. Proverbs says, don't, don't lose instruction. Take hold of it. Don't let it go. You think you've got this. Wisdom says you don't. Take hold of instruction or you will groan in the end. And you will say to yourselves, how I have hated instruction. I think I have been robbed more than anyone else I know. I am not kidding you. I, I've just been kind of looking back over my life and thinking about how many times I've been robbed. Have you ever had a thief take something from you? I think the, the last house we were in, I think I was robbed four times. I may be missing one, including having a car stolen. It's bizarre. And less than two months after moving into my new house, I got robbed. I have a, a shed, and thieves got into my shed and took these, these lawn tools I had Hundreds of years of purchasing and saving and taking care of, including my chainsaw, which my treasure is in heaven. But, but you know what? I make it easy for thieves. I've been told by the police over the years, thieves are looking for easy. And that's my middle name. I hate to lock things up. <laughs> the vehicle they stole was unlocked and the keys were on the... <laughs> in fact, there was another vehicle in the driveway that I'm still driving. The keys were in it and they, they took the keys out from under the seat and put them on the seat like, we could have stole this one too, bonehead. <laughs> what about the shed? Unlocked. Unlocked after my wife, Sherry, had told me to lock it. Unlocked after my friend and neighbor, Tom, had told me to lock it. The sheriff said they're looking for easy. I am getting counsel and advice from the best of friends. But I didn't think the lock was good enough, and I, my, my response was, you know, if I lock it up, they'll just tear the door off, and I don't want them to booger up my shed. So I left it unlocked and made it easy. How I hated instruction. Jesus told the parable, you know, he's like, thieves break in and steal. It mocks me because, no, they didn't have to break in. They just opened the door and walked in and took it. Now it's locked, trust me. I am not going to make it easy for any more thieves. I've got it locked. I put a padlock on it. There are landmines around my shed. They get anywhere near that shed. They'll be 
blown up. <laughs> I'm kidding. But if you are a thief out there watching, <laughs> and you've got my chainsaw, bring it back. It, it was humbling. What was so humbling was I had all the instruction. Proverbs 12, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is, is him who listens, he who listens to counsel. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Pride hates instruction. A second thing we can learn from our text that will serve us in our pursuit of humility is the relationship between pride and anxiety. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he will exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Notice there's no period at the end of verse 6. Verse 7 is not a new sentence. Humble yourselves, casting all your anxieties. Casting your anxiety on God is somehow a part of the pursuit of humility. It's somehow casting your anxiety is part of humbling yourself. It's, it's crucial if you're going to humble yourself under God's mighty hand that you cast your cares to him. Peter is, is calling us to kind of a peaceful, confident humility. Because we trust God. Pride refuses to trust God. Pride is anxious about the future. Your anxiety. My anxiety is rooted in my pride. Proverbs 28-25. An arrogant man stirs up strife. Now notice the contrast. But he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. On one hand you have an arrogant man. On the other hand, you have a man who trusts the Lord. If we want to live our lives trusting God, we have to recognize our weaknesses, our limitations. We humble ourselves and confess our dependence on God and our need for Him. Proud men and women, they think they're in control. They go into the next week thinking, I'm in control, I got this. But humble men and women, are weak and needy and dependent. And they cast their burdens to the Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus makes it clear that we're not in control, but God is in control. Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on, you can just remember Peter's there. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than these birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one single hour to his span of life? In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 12, he's, he said, Jesus said, since you can't do just this little small thing, 
You can't add one hour to your life. That's a small thing to God. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not? Listen, this is for you. <laughs> will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Isn't that encouraging? Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, unbelievers, people that don't live for God, that don't trust God, seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father, He knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and your heavenly Father We'll add all these things to you. So comforting. We have plenty to be anxious about these days. One of many examples. This week, another mass shooting. There have been 11 mass shootings. This year. 2021, it's only April, mid-April. Last week we prayed for a former pastor of ours that we sent out to plant a church in Athens, our dear friend Walla Alexander. One of the mass shootings was in Rock Hill, South Carolina, where his family's from, where he grew up, where his best friend lives. His best friend's mom and dad were murdered and his children were murdered. One of the mass shootings. So it hit close to home last week when we prayed. Felt very close. It's, it's, it's tempting. And then this week, another mass shooting. It's tempting, isn't it? There's so many things that feel out of our control. Because they are out of our control. And we, we think about solutions. How can we solve these problems? And leaders are scrambling. And I think for most of us, it's not a confidence builder. The solutions that are, they're coming up with. And it, it can be just another, more evidence that our world's spinning out of control. And it can be a temptation. Burke Parsons is the editor for a wonderful little devotional magazine called Table Talk that Ligonier Ministries puts out. He, he is writing next month, their whole issue is on anxiety. He writes, we still struggle with anxiety. He's talking about trusting the Lord and how good and powerful God is. We still struggle with anxiety because we care about our own welfare and that of those whom we so dearly love. We become anxious about the future of our families, our health, our churches, our employments, our investments, our nations, because we care about them. We become anxious because we care, and care will lead us into anxiety when we turn to ourselves and not to God. God calls us 
to cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. He doesn't tell us to cast some of our anxieties upon him, but all of them. Even the ones we think we have under control. When we become anxious, it's often because we think we're in control. Going to our Father in prayer is the antidote to anxiety. When we pray, we're admitting that we're not God and we're not in control, but that He is. I, this, this last sentence is why I wanted this quote in here. I found that those who pray the most worry the least. So we're going to end today with prayer. And we're going to cast our cares on Him. We have to remember that what makes the God of the Bible so different is that He doesn't first come to us and command us to work for Him. He commands His people to let Him work for them. His work always explains our work. Legalism and moralism are rooted in pride. Fellowship with God in Christ is rooted in humility. Isaiah 64, 4. From of old no one is heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. There's only one who acts for those who wait for him, who are patient. Then you get ferment, energy, power. Isaiah 46, 4 is dear to me, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. God insists on being the one that works. We cast, we throw our anxieties on him because he cares for us. That's the promise, wonderful promise of these verses. A final thing and the most important thing about this text I think that we can learn that Peter highlights is is found throughout scripture. He's actually quoting a proverb, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the foundation of everything that Peter is saying. And it's it's throughout scripture, God opposes the proud, but he gives his favor, his grace to the humble. And so he's motivating the pastors. He's motivating the young people. He's motivating every member of the church to walk in humility because God opposes the proud. You do not want to be opposed by God. He's quoting Proverbs 3. In the ESV, it says, toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The context is a poem found in Proverbs 3. And right in the middle is, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The poem has, has prohibitions for the son's relationship. He, it's, it's a father with a son, and he's teaching his son how to relate to people. And he, he's talking about humility because it'll lead him to avoid relating to people in, in, in certain ways that are foolish and not wise. For example, arguing with someone for no reason. So he walks through all these different relational things 
And he says, remember, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Peter takes this and uses it. He's insisting on humility. And it's, it's not like just his personal preference or some arbitrary counsel. It's not like it just fit with the culture. In fact, in, in the Roman culture, humility was disdained. It was not valued. It was not prized. It was seen as the mark of a slave. But in this letter, P- Peter is teaching his readers a different worldview, isn't he? He's, he's teaching them they're not of this world. They're citizens of another country. And so he, he is countercultural. Roman culture didn't like humility. But Peter didn't care. Wisdom shouts. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humility isn't popular in our culture, is it? You're not going to find books on humility at Barnes & Noble. The talk shows are not going to have humble people come. We want to introduce you to this man because of his humility. They're not going to do that. UT's commencement speeches this spring are not going to be models of humility. I've sat through too many of them. And the reason for that is obvious. Humility is the fruit of a belief in God. And when God goes, there goes humility. We can expect to find humility celebrated in our society as, as often as we find God celebrated. Man has taken God's place. And by definition, that's the opposite of humility. It's pride. The center storyline of the Bible, God's plan for redemption, central to that is the work of Christ. He, Philippians 2, humbled himself. He, this is the message of the gospel. This is what we're all about. He humbled himself for the proud. He took their place. God opposes the proud. And that means everyone in this room should be opposed. But he humbled himself. And he died on a cross and and received the opposition that we all should have received. He received it for us. And now we receive the favor that he earned through his humility. And God raised him from the dead to vindicate him. He was an innocent man who died on a cross. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We humble ourselves when we begin the Christian life by trusting in this plan of redemption. We believe there is one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for many. So we begin the Christian life humbling ourselves. We don't earn your favor. We trust in Christ alone. We come and confess our pride. Let's let's consider what Peter says and humble ourselves afresh this morning before we pray. God opposes the proud. What could be worse than being opposed by omnipotence? 
Almighty God. What could be worse? God gives grace to the humble. What could be better than favor from God? He blesses the humble. He's powerful. He's wise. And he blesses the humble. It's not because with our humility we earn his favor. Humility is a confession of our dependence on him. And he exalts the humble with his mighty hand. The humble succeed. You want to understand the success of the church in the first few centuries of the church? Patience, humility, trusting God. The humble succeed. God's invisible power lifts them up. He cares for the humble. There's a promise here for all of you that share my struggle with anxiety. You have no need to be anxious because this God promises to care for you. Isn't that amazing? So let's pursue humility right now through prayer. Let's humble ourselves. Don't be anxious about anything, Paul said, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests made known to God. Cast your anxieties to God through prayer. First Peter says, cast your anxiety on God by trusting that He cares for you. Philippians 4 says, cast your anxiety on the Lord by praying, letting your requests be made known to Him. So let's trust Him. I want you to bow your heads with me and just take a minute. Think about what you're anxious about and humble yourself before the Lord and cast that burden to Him. Cast that care to Him. Trust Him. Humble yourself and say, Lord, I'm not in control, but you are in control. He hears the prayers of the humble. They cast their anxieties to Him. And He promises to care for them. Father, we join together this morning with our anxieties to cast them to You, to throw them to You, Lord. We want to walk in humility this week. And so we want to be characterized by peace and not anxiety. By freedom and liberty. By rest. So here are the prayers of all these anxious folks where we cast it to you this morning. What are we worried about? We cast it to you now, this morning. Father, I pray for our congregation. Lord, I pray for your invisible power to be made known in our midst and that we would make the gospel attractive by humbling ourselves and trusting you. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.